0: Alright, here we are, episode 2 of AKA Podcast. This is Brent Figgy, and I'll be your host. And today, my guest with me on the show is Gil Losi Jr. How you doing, Gil? I'm doing great. How you doing, Brent? Doing well, thanks. Glad to have you with us. So, uh, those of you that don't know Gil, uh, which will probably be the younger crowd in RC, uh, Gil, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into RC in the early days of uh, your career?
1: Oh, wow. Well, Started, we, I was a professional skateboarder at one point. If anybody ever Googled my brother, Alan, they'll see that he had an entire career in skateboarding. But I got tired of getting beat up and <laughs> wasn't nearly as talented as he was. Um, and my dad brought home one, a little RC car that he had bought to play with when he was out working at the skateboard company. And I fell in love with it, dropped my skateboard, and never looked back.
0: I know that you, uh, early in your career, you um you know, obviously, Losi is a brand that everybody's going to recognize these days that uh, you're no longer involved with. Uh, when, when did your family jump into the RC business uh, full-time, I guess you can say? Well, We actually picked up a hobby shop, or,
1: or actually go back before that. I worked at a skateboard park, um, and then my as, as skateboarding was declining in the late 70s, um, we were using it as a home base for the Veriflex skateboard team. So we were, the family was involved. I started getting into the RC, so I built a racetrack at the skateboard park. And over the next three or four months, the track got very active. The RC thing was exploding at the time with all the Tamiya Rough Riders. And before we knew it, we had a legitimate business happening out in the dirt field next to our our skateboard park. And it just kind of kept building. Um, The city came and said, you can't do that here. You're getting <laughs> too much dust next to our local tennis club. And at the exact same time, a, a track called The Pit Shop um, was basically going bankrupt. So my dad purchased that. Um, we changed the name to The Ranch Pit Shop because uh, the skateboard park was The Ranch and everybody okay. knew The Ranch Raceway so we just combined the two names. And over the next really 10 years, turned The Ranch Pit Shop into the world-class uh, facility that it was. It helped. We held, hosted... You know, many world championships for every scale—a car from 12 scale, 10 scale, on-road and off-road, 8 scale on-road. Um, actually, two 10 scale off-road world championships, and just kind of got good at tracks, good at importing, exporting, and kind of we were the the center of the 10 scale electric off-road for many years.
0: And is that where the Losi brand all started?
1: Yeah, the Losey brand started with, when we took over the pit shop, they had a mail order program already in works and they had some ranch products. Um, when we, when we So probably a year after we took over, we we started molding spur gears, plastic spur gears for RC cars and just sold them under the Team Losey logo. And that's where it started for the RC. Prior to that, my dad always raced full-size cars and he just always put Team Losey on the side <laughs> of his cars. So it was kind of one of those The name had been around for a long time. He raced under it, but um, we started as aftermarket parts for Tamiya cars. And that was, I think that would have been like around 1980. Okay. 1980, 81, somewhere in that window. And yeah, then it moved from spare parts for Tamiya cars to design, designing actual purpose built parts to just did a lot of product development over those years. We were, always improving our cars and just about every part I made either we made or a company called CRP would produce um, and that got my kind of my me started in product design. So what was the first car that
0: you designed and got out into production?
1: Well to be fair, the first project I ever worked on and what really introduced me to product development was the RC10. Um, I, I associated um, con- you know, approached us and asked if I would help them in the design process. Roger Curtis is a very, very brilliant guy. If anybody's ever been around him, he's one of those eccentric, smart people. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I spent many hours sitting with him kind of more than anything, being interviewed by him, what we'd done, what was the history of 10 scale off-road, what the different cars did, what the different tracks were like when we used what tires and kind of just get was more of historian for him. And then he would bounce some ideas and then he sat down and designed the RC-10, and then I was part of the original design team. Oh, cool. So, you know, so our, I should say not design, testing team. But in the process, working with Curtis Hustings and Roger Curtis, learned a lot about product development, product machining, um, how to test. Um, they were really influential in teaching me
0: kind of for you know how to do what I do. So that, uh, so that sounds like it was a pretty mutual relationship between you and Associated that you had a lot of the uh, the knowledge of the industry and what the cars were doing and what type of tracks were going on, and they had more of the the production knowledge and, and how to get that out to production and yeah, and they to work had together. They
1: had been working obviously in, in on road racing for so many years. They were really really talented at it. You know, they had the team down. They had the how to how to develop products down. How different people interacted. So they were really good. And I, I did really enjoy those 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 years with them. Okay yeah you know, people don't realize it, but uh, the the twelve l concept originally the l stood for losi that was kind of one of the one of the little
0: innovations that i i contributed to associated That's a fun little fact for you so getting back to the ranch um when did the ranch finally close its doors? i think in ninety nine
1: or two thousand i think ninety nine it's hard to remember I'm, <laughs> my memory for for dates and times is not very good <laughs>
0: Well, without getting too far into the interview, uh, one, one thing that, uh, you know, I've heard stories up upon story, uh, at the ranch for the big races. Are there any big races, either a yearly race you held there or, or just one single big event being the world championship or whatever that stands out in your mind, uh, at the ranch pitch up?
1: Well, shoot. Yeah. The, the 97 worlds was the first, uh, first worlds with team Lucy Carr ever won at. We were second and. In- Close to winning many of them, but that was the first one where the stars aligned. Um, so that race stands out. Um, but yeah, my favorites were always the McCoy races. I always loved eight scale on road. That was my my favorite class to race. So that that particular
0: race was at our track, and look forward to it every year. Okay. So a little bit of your uh, more recent involvement in the industry. Uh, you know, what what are you up to these days in the RC industry? for for, for the people that don't know you. Wow, what am I up to? That's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. Well, I'm still,
1: I still work sort of as a consultant for Joel here at AKA. Um, you know, still have ownership, part ownership in it. But my job is I work for a company called Firelands Group, and we're producing all the proprietary product for the Hobbytown franchise stores. Um, and it's been a really exciting program because we are actually working real hard on making hobby shops profitable. You know, it's kind of Hobbytown's got a really neat program, good point of sale system. They were good with many of the front-end aspects of supporting hobby shops. But we, you know, through the last really 15 years, we've seen the, the profit margins on all the products decline. And so our main focus was coming back in, putting reasonable products in the stores that the stores can make a decent profit on, and kind of kind of make the brick and mortar hobby shop business profitable. So it'll be around because we don't have an industry if we can't bring new people in, and new people don't usually find racing; they find a hobby shop and they, they play and they play around in their backyard, and they need they need that help, they need mentoring, and so I'm really interested in
0: trying to help rebuild that system. Right. So you kind of got your hands in both sides of of our hobby from the intro level hobby grade. Uh, all the way to aka with the strictly racing products, do you do you typically um, do do correlations between those two different levels kind of drive you with product development? or is it something uh, that's you know completely disconnected? It really depends
1: on where we're where we're working. Um, some things are related. Um, you know people buy certain products because they're like the race cars. Um, other products really the do, people don't care about racing. They just want something that looks good and go bashing um, So it really depends product to product. It varies.
0: Well, I think from there Let's uh, jump into our tire talk segment tire talk is all things aka and uh, I was having a conversation with gail since I see him often around the office office here at aka uh, we were talking about inserts and closed cell inserts. And of all people that are still active in the industry, I don't think there's many people that have, uh, you know, as much experience with inserts as you do and have been around since uh, RC cars have actually started using inserts. Um, when when did inserts start becoming a thing in RC cars?
1: Wow. That would be somewhere in the early mid 80s, I think. Let's see. I can remember... Probably I'm gonna guess 8586. It would be probably when the, the we started using soft open cell foam and fairly hard rubber tires.
0: And what were the, what were the tracks like back then? What kind of treads were you using and, and why did you see the need to start running inserts in these cars? Well, in the early days, obviously we had very hard tires
1: and so all the tracks were kept soft, kept soft, raked wet, um, We'd always run with a little bit of loam. And as the industry grew, we got, we went from 40 people at a racetrack to 200 people at some of these racetracks. And you couldn't actually groom the track and get through a race day. So, um, the tracks consistently were getting more blown out. Um, you didn't have time to go keep them wet. They go dry. Um, and as they went dry, they get very, very slippery. So tires kept getting softer and the need to support them. Arose so, we we hit a limit at probably about 50 shore, where you just you couldn't control the tire anymore, um, and you had to have some sort of a foam support in it to to, to make the car go straight and not just kind of run around on flat tires. But you know it got it got to be a race to see who could get the softest compounds for many years, um, right. and we were using chemicals to do it, using different rubbers to do it. And the learning curve was huge. We had these long, hard spike tires in the beginning. You put a soft compound on it. Now the lugs were so flexible, it's like running around on ball bearings. <laughs> you know, you didn't know what, they had grip, but you didn't have any control of the grip. Right. Um, so it was learning how to make lugs shorter, how wider, what the what the dimensions needed to be. So it looked like a whole bunch of little plateaus. One year we go softer, then it would take a year to get the kind of relearn the foams, the tread designs, how to car set up the cars. Um, and then the following year we go softer again and we'd start over. So you could see it kind of in these plateaus and in, in every two years, it'd be a softer compound. Then that, then the next year was learning how to make it work. And then the following year would be a compound again. And so it was a really long,
0: steady plateaued learning curve. Gotcha. So it's kind of the natural evolution of the tires. You're getting softer. You started seeing the need for inserts. Uh, right away, were you playing with lots of different types of inserts, or was it something it, it was very limited? You kind of used what you had, and then if so, when when was the point you started playing with different types of foam for inserts?
1: Um, well, in the very beginning, it was just kind of whatever, whatever open-cell foam we could get our hands on. We weren't very sophisticated on it yet, and— The minute we really, when we started producing the Jarek's two, we had to put tires in the kit and shortly thereafter, you know, went into purchasing, you know, foam inserts. And then as soon as you start working with a foam manufacturer, they had a million infinite choices available to us at the time and playing with densities, cell structure, how hard the initial load deflection is. And it was really interesting. You know, we'd go on bumpy tracks, you'd use a big open cell foam that was kind of crunchy feeling because it absorbed the bumps. But then when you got on a track that had high speed or high loads, you go to a small cell that was a high rebound foam because it would hold up and recover under the loads of the, of the grip and the cornering cornering forces. So playing with all those different mixtures of foams and then stacking foams as dual stage and three stage. And, um, you yeah, know, we, we spent as many hours working on foams as we did our
0: cars what what are some of the oddest things or funniest things you remember trying as inserts, cutting up? Oh, I mean, w- I hear people using foam mattress pads, too. I even I even heard recently that Brian Kinwald was cutting up beer koozies to make them into inserts <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for clay tracks running well, slicks. The
1: craziest thing we ever did, Detroit, I think it was the Detroit Nationals before they had the Worlds in Detroit. Um, everything was bouncing. We couldn't get the cars to stop bouncing. When was that? I... Th- Think ninety seven, ninety eight, okay. somewhere in that window, and we were actually running out and buying replaceable air filter pads, just the high fibrous, kind of almost no spring rate, just lay, you know rolling them up into um, a mini layered ball and then stuffing <laughs> them in tires, and they had this kind of hard, dead, kind of weird thing because it would go through the whoop whoop bumps that this because it was really sandy there. Oh, okay, and it was just it would take the impacts of all the little craters where the track would pop and go through the washboards, you know that was that was really probably the roughest of the high speed tracks we ever had to race on.
0: Okay, well then I guess the next step in in the evolution of the insert is I mean open cell inserts have been around since the eighties, uh, you know when you guys first started using them. Um, so when did when and how did the closed cell insert come about?
1: Well. When we started AKA, um, we were looking to, uh, you know, we started in eight scale. Everything was a molded polyurethane foam at the time. And we were looking for a good vendor for that. But at the same time we were, you know, meek and Mark were always, where, where can we go with this? What, what can we do with it? And through the, just searching for people that could make foam products, I came across a company that was making kids, baseball bats and like rubber f- baseballs and It was interesting. I went and looked at the foams they were making them out of and thought, you know, this has different properties than the urethane. It's a more progressive rate. It's a much higher rebound. And through the years, we, we had always found that higher rebound foams make more traction. They don't, you know, as it deflects and it comes around as fast as we go, um, foams that don't recover fast end up getting softer at speed you know, the foam doesn't recover in time. So it's almost like as you load it, the, the, the foam compresses and then you run, you end up on a flat, flat tire by the end of the corner. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you hit a straightaway and it spins up, it comes back. So we'd have these really weird handling traits that we were always trying to overcome that were foam induced. And so when I saw this closed cell foam, as soft as they could make it and the rebound that this would be a, a fun thing to play with. So went and met with a company that could do it. Um, gave them samples of something to copy and for shape and size and disappeared and kept going down the closed cell urethane route. And we had a few vendors that we were close to building molds with for production and almost had forgotten about the closed cell (laughs) idea. And lo and behold, some samples showed up and it was right before um, the nationals in Beaumont. I don't remember what year that was, but um, right. You know, do you remember what, do you remember what year that was? Uh, oh, nine. So, so somewhere in there, Ish. but something around there threw them in my car there and they were way too stiff for the suspension I had, but the grip and the consistency were exactly what I was looking for. So I spent the rest of the weekend completely retuning shocks, more holes, bigger holes, changing oils and getting the right kind of shock behavior to go with a foam that doesn't compress all the way the wheel. And as I kept sneaking up on it, the car just kept getting better and better. And before long, I was turning faster lap times than guys that are much better than me these days. And, um, the cars landing on jumps and not doing the same stupid things it always did with the urethane foams. And sure enough, it's like started passing them around to the, to Mark and the other guys to try and everybody could see the potential value in it. Mm-hmm. So we made a quick turn and just followed that path to where we are today.
0: So those were the original, the black inserts, the black yes. closed cell, yep. which in comparison to what we're running on now are, were pretty hard. They were, but you know, they were still, I mean, even, even at that point,
1: they were hard to feel the spring rate, but the rebound was fast. They weren't dead like a urethane. So the rolling resistance, obviously they rolled faster, but it's like when you think about a contact patch, if a foam is stiff before you move it. And then you compress it, and it compresses a long way, but it still did it slow. It acts stiff at speed. So even though a a urethane foam didn't support the tire, it still drove stiff Mm -hmm. because it couldn't flex and unflex fast enough. And so these instantly had more traction. Even though they were that hard, the grip was still better because at speed, they could deflect and undeflect much quicker, which made more traction. So it was like stiff as far as squeezing it, but not stiff as far as the tire patch and how fast it could recover. Take an imprint and then recover.
0: Right. So after the, the original black inserts, uh, the next step after that was the red inserts. Yeah. So we, uh,
1: we went about trying to make softer foams and then obviously working with, uh, the grooving and the different styles of grooving to get softer. Um, and we had, Learned really quickly a lot of good tricks, but we couldn't figure out how to make them. <laughs> <laughs> so it took, you know, like the, the horizontal flutes that are in them today, it took a while to get to where the company was comfortable doing it, making tools to try it, you know, learning. They had to learn how to do it. Right. And so there was a long learning curve in getting to where we are now, both for us and the manufacturer.
0: Right. Well, it couldn't have been too hard. I mean, everybody else has them now. (laughs) It's easy to
1: copy. (laughs) It's easy to do something when you've seen it's possible and somebody else shows you how.
0: Right. Right. Um, is that when you saw the potential of the closed cell inserts, was that a product that you knew right away was going to kind of, uh, be a revolution in the industry or was that kind of a surprise?
1: No, I thought it was, I thought we were right on point. I thought that, you know, where we were was a big step forward. And the only, the only risk we had was people needed to change their setup and people are always resistant to change. Mm -hmm. So it took a, it took the better part of a year. Um, you know, all the other companies are downplaying it, criticizing it, saying it doesn't work. Um, until all their team guys started running our phones all the time. And, then they went, okay, we'll have to do it, and then everybody's song changed. But you know, you really saw we were the only one with closed cell for more than a year, and I think up until just recently, most people were still always using ours because you know we, we found a very good vendor and we went through the learning curve together, so even though people could copy something that was close, they still didn't have the formulations that held up. It took them a long time to catch up.
0: Right. Now, as far as uh Maybe the next step or the next revolution for inserts. Uh, is there anything that you see? I mean, I know that I've seen in like the automotive industry, um, at a lot of the the big automotive shows, you see the the one piece tires that have the weird spoke cores that are made out of uh, a composite or a rubber um, to you know to replace the tubeless tires. Um, you know, I guess it's a rim and tire all in one. Um, do you see anything from that, or maybe pneumatic tires? Uh, come into the future of RC?
1: Well, it's always possible.
0: <laughs> it's always possible. The hard part with the,
1: the pneumatic or the, the, the solid tires is weight. It's just hard to get the weight there. Um, most of the applications are for slower vehicles, high-load vehicles, forklifts, trucks. Um, You've really s- not seen very much done into a, any sort of a performance application yet. And it's just it's so heavy, and it's, you know, weight weight is not good in a performance vehicle. Right. Um, we saw uh, an insert out of Europe, I don't remember the name off the top of my head, that was a kind of a spoke type of design, and it was molded out of a thermoplastic rubber. And they didn't handle bad, but they were very heavy. So if you didn't have a motor clutch and everything on top, but they would put a lot of load on your drivetrain. But they didn't work bad, but they were just too heavy.
0: Yeah, I guess... A lot of people don't think about to scale the speed that these cars are going would probably be comparable to a full size car going a couple hundred miles an hour. Yeah,
1: so, yeah, as, as
0: much as much as a three or four hundred miles an hour in some cases. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I could especially have... ten scale. Right. Yeah. Go go throw an extra twenty percent of weight on a tire on a Bugatti doing two hundred miles an hour and see what happens. Yeah,
1: yeah. Usually they become really stable and they don't
0: turn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the gyroscopes themselves make just impossible to make a vehicle turn.
0: Well, I think let's jump into race chat. Race chat's our next segment, segment where we talk about uh, all things racing. And a huge event I think everybody's pretty familiar with is the World Championships at uh, Yotabi Arena in Tokyo um just a couple weeks ago where a uh, lot of controversy of the 10 scale electric off-road worlds being held on uh, what some people called an on-road track namely because it was on turf. Yeah. And well, caught, was it like turf or carpet? Uh, it was turf. Turf, okay. yeah, it was turf. And the racing crowd was pretty outspoken and and shocked by it that that's what they decided to race on. And uh, you know, most people didn't think it was it was off road. Um, what's uh, I mean, obviously you've seen turf and carpet for quite a while well, in racing. Yeah, it's
1: been popular in England for as long as I've been racing.
0: Yeah, and and uh you know it's. I would guess it's mainly due to their weather over yeah. there.
1: You can't have a dirt track when it rains every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: And I'm, and I'm sure from what it seems like, a lot of the clubs over there have to do their own tracks and they can just roll out turf or carpet in any building, throw down some jumps and, and hold a race for their club.
1: Yeah. And, and honestly, they they've been racing in the rain since I started too. it's, it's, they have absolutely wonderful club tracks in England and they, they, they lay down sand and then they put the, 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 the AstroTurf on top, then they put sand on top and let it work its way into the carpet fibers to make it nice and hard and heavy. It doesn't move around. And the wonderful thing at those tracks is you can build them, they can be rained on all year, and you have almost no maintenance. You know, the, those tracks last. I mean, I've raced on tracks there that have been around for you know, six, seven years without any maintenance, and they hold up really well.
0: Right. Well, you've seen types of tracks like that over in europe for quite a while do you foresee um do you foresee turf and carpet tracks taking on in the united states well i definitely see it as a good option for
1: indoor facilities you know where you know people don't realize how difficult it is to have a dirt track indoors it's always moist they they can tend to get moldy you can have sinus problems health problems um And we're lucky these days, you know, with the calcium chloride and some of the other stuff we put on it, it really mitigates it. But there was a point in time when I couldn't go to very many indoor tracks. I was getting sinus infections every year with the testing I was doing indoor and it was really problematic. And we kind of went down to the dirt's always wet. It's going to be growing things. And, um, at the same time, it's just, it's expensive. It's a lot of maintenance. A lot of building owners don't want to let people have dirt inside their buildings um so it it is a legitimate indoor option
0: right it seems like it's kind of a natural evolution for our industry um cuz like before when we were talking about the types of tracks you were racing on back in the 80s and how they were me and the tracks were prepped with a hose and yeah. a rake and you would never see that. anymore. Well, I was
1: going to p- comment that if anybody that raced in the eighties saw the dirt tracks we'd race on today, their first thing is like, you guys are racing on asphalt tracks. That's not off-road racing. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> right. And, and I think that's one thing that kind of surprised me about the uproar of racing on turf is that our off-road tracks these days are all so smooth and so prepped and, they're, they're packed pretty much smoother than a lot of the roads around here. And yeah, they're, they're undulating, you have jumps and, uh, but everybody, all the racers at these big events keep on demanding more consistency, better tracks. If the track breaks up, then people start complaining. And so it kind of seems to me that it, it's a good natural evolution for, uh, for tracks to start going towards carpet and going towards turf because it, uh, uh, alleviates a lot of those problems and a lot of those complaints that the racers have what, what's, I, I mean, I know you're not super active in the racing community these days, but from just your experience, what's your perspective from a racer standpoint and, and seeing what the changes in the industry, uh, is that a good direction to go with off-road racing or not? Well, I have two hats on this one.
1: I can argue both sides of this one to, to the death and I can't win. So, <laughs> well, give us a little okay. bit of each. So from, from the industry, the old industry person, I think the further we get away from real off-road racing, which includes loamy, bumpy dirt tracks. Um, and we get these really specialized, really consistent tracks that we move further and further away from new people coming in and having fun. Um, kind of the, 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 the benefit of carpet is also the risk of it. Um, the fact that you can show up every day, run on a really consistent track, rewards people that show up and run at the track every day. But those aren't normal customers. Normal customers have jobs, family. They, you know, their kids that are going to school, and they want to come run a, run once a week, you know, maybe twice a month. And you can't be competitive if there's a track set up and somebody can test there, you know, six days a week you know, take one day off, that person's going to get way better than everybody else. And then at some point the other people quit coming and it's really, really, the learning curve gets so steep to compete with that guy that you end up with five or six really, really good racers and wondering where all the customers went.
0: (laughs) Okay. And then from your, from a
1: racer standpoint, I like things. If I get out there and work hard, that there's not a whole bunch of fate, not a whole bunch of bad luck, when we race on some bumpy, loamy tracks, you never knew if you were going to get the wet track, the dry track, which one would be faster that day. And you could be the fastest guy, work hard, have the best equipment, and find yourself in the B main because you got the wrong track condition. Which, as a racer, I hate that. Right. As somebody that likes new people coming into the industry, I love that. <laughs> the best thing we can have is people have a chance to get lucky and do better than their ability, and that helps keep people there. That you know like when you play golf you can have a bad score but if you remember your one good shot you come back right so you know if we make it too specialized and too difficult to learn if people don't get their one good
0: shot every night then they quit coming back right so from what i've seen with you know what cars are popular and available now obviously there's been a big shift to mid motor for for two wheel drive buggies which is hands down the most popular racing class and Not necessarily the first class that people get into, but then again, now short course and stadium truck are all mid-motor as well. Do you think that kind of levels the playing field a little bit when it comes to a new racer getting into a turf or carpet track, uh, you know, compared to an experienced racer or is it just that the tracks have so much traction and are so much faster? That's really the difference between those two racers.
1: Yeah, I think that it's really you do have the, the mid motor car is just an evolution for the track condition. I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference to a newbie or an expert. I mean, no matter what condition you were in, um, you still had the same same discrepancy and inability. Kind of, kind of. I don't know how to answer the question <laughs> beyond that. It's kind of, you know, the in the old days when tracks were really, really slippery, everybody was in agony but you kind of were agony together and got to laugh about it. Right. Now with all the with all the grip, I assume when a new person picks up, a, you know, a high grip car, they're running into a lot of stuff and getting frustrated that way. So either one's difficult for its own reasons.
0: Right. So yeah, I guess it just comes down to the hard work ends up paying off yeah. uh, exponentially more on a higher grip track.
1: Well, all my years of racing, I don't care what class it was, you know, on-road, off-road. When tracks got too slippery, it was impossible and not fun. They get the right grip level and it was a lot of fun. And then when the grip level went above that, it would get difficult. Mm -hmm. And if you get too much grip, uh, it just makes everything so positive that every mistake is
0: just, you know, exponentially, you know, exaggerated. Does car setup kind of end up going out the window when you get to that point?
1: No, I think it actually gets more important. Uh, you know, at least from my experience, you know, again, there's a middle road for each, each class of vehicle mm-hmm. and where they have their sweet spot where they're forgiving. But whenever the bike gets higher than what is forgiving, things tend to get really difficult and really violent.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to understand where the best point is. Would be for new racers to come in.
1: Yeah, it really depends on the equipment you know, too. Right, right. Because gra- I mean, we saw. I, I think if you just make them slow enough, it doesn't matter. You know, it comes comes down to having a stock class that's slow enough for them to actually be able to 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 have
0: fun and have some success. That that is a great point too. And then on, in episode one, when I was sitting down with Mark, that was one thing we talked about is stock class. And uh, I think one of our mutual feelings is that. Stock class is way too fast. It's I,
1: I it's, like racing stock. It's fast enough for me now. And I was the crazy horsepower king in my day. I like the fastest motors possible. Nowadays, it's like stock class is more what's, what I can handle. I would, wouldn't dream of getting out there with the, the stuff that's available with the brushless stuff now.
0: Right. What kind of impact would you see on the industry uh, after the world's being held on a surface like that? I mean, I I know right away... I started seeing trends, um, of people preparing. I mean, for, for one thing that is just, <laughs> I love how everybody calls it Kool-Aid just cause it's the front wings on, on the two wheel, and four wheel drive bug. Okay. I mean, everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, but that's one thing that I saw catch on. And I think a lot of that, uh, I think that started in prep for, for racing on, the surface of world. So that super high grip stuff.
1: If you go back and look at the triple X, we had a front wing mount that shipped with the triple X. We actually used to sell a wing kit for the front of it. And that was for racing on the clay tracks of that day. The, you know, we still had these rear motor cars. We really struggled to get them to turn on the clay tracks. and, so you saw the front wings pop up there, right? And right. N- now with a mid-engine car, and you're getting center of gravity far enough forward, just because of the f- the forward center of gravity, you're creating push, right? So now you now the front wing's even more important, just to, so you can run that weight forward,
0: right? And it's funny that it's it's everybody perceives it as something new over here, but yeah, by over here I mean in the United States, because it's not something you've seen in the last ten years, but okay. they've been around for a long time, and I know that's something that they use over. Uh, in Europe and in Asia on, because they race more on these tracks. They're familiar with these tracks. Now, do you think since the world's, do you think it has uh, enough pull in starting trends like that? Are we going to see more turf? Are we going to see more carpet tracks in the United States?
1: It's Um, hard to say at this point. I mean, do
0: you, do you you think just because of one race of the prestige of that and all the preparation, all of the money and R and D that the manufacturers put into, uh, does that kind of set things in motion in one direction? It could. It could. If enough manufacturers
1: get equipment that works well on it, and those manufacturers get behind sponsoring events on that surface, then it would. But I kind of hesitate to see that anybody's really going to do that. Um, Traditionally, world championships, especially ones that are held overseas, don't have that strong an impact on the U.S. Um, If you go through the years, we've seen many different track conditions that are different than what we would do. And they never came over here just because we raced the worlds on it.
0: Right. Well, I think a lot of it's just out of necessity over there. Like we talked about how yep. it's so wet in England, they, yeah, different they weather, different tracks. We're just spoiled.
1: Yeah, we are. <laughs> People don't know how spoiled we are.
0: Right. Especially in Southern California where we have great weather and we also have a lot of tracks. I mean, unfortunately a lot of them have came and gone rather quickly, but we still have a lot of choices of, of different types of surfaces to race on indoor, outdoor, um, which is great for the industry with most of the manufacturers being around here that they're they're able to test on these types of tracks.
1: Definitely, definitely. The consumers at the end of the day will be the ones that choose. They'll decide which cars they enjoy, which tracks they enjoy, and they'll be the ones that s- say what's going to stick around.
0: Fair enough. I, I think the consumer tends to be the biggest influence in most industries because they're the ones that have the money. <laughs> Well, they're, they're not the ones getting free product. <laughs> yeah, they they definitely they, and and you know it's it's when you work with people
1: they're the ones that are having the most fun too. Right.
0: Now, uh, talking about the uh, the manufacturers that spend a lot of money in R and D on races like this, that just kind of you know spurred a thought with me. Is that something that you've you see a lot of evolution in product? I mean, for for instance, this year there was a lot of new cars or updates to the cars that were unveiled at the Worlds and all of them with the, you know, the the lay down transmissions and, um, you know, moving motors further forward. Yeah, Associated pretty much had a prototype car. Losi, their car was kind of the next rendition of of theirs. Uh, Kyosho had prototype stuff um, and stuff that looked like it was their next car. So there's been a lot of money and a lot of R&D um spent on this race to make these cars specific to these tracks which weren't really before there was aftermarket support for these chassis but not necessarily a whole lot of support from the manufacturers over the years is that something that you've you would see these events that they would have to adapt to kind of become uh new cars in the next level in the industry I would say
1: it's really dependent on the year. We've had years where we built special cars for a, a track and came back and threw them all in the trash. And we've had years <laughs> when it actually led to, to an important innovation. Um, and I, I think it's hard to tell. It's, you, have, you have to wait and see. Um, you know, there's been, I can't tell you how many times we thought we were, you know, creating the next big thing only to find out a year later that, huh, we better, better go back to our old car
0: right yeah it's it always catches my eye when i see these guys i mean i remember when mid-motor started becoming popular and you know i saw associated guys testing at our, our local indoor clay tracks here that have a good amount of traction and they were kind of unsure whether or not the mid-motor stuff was going to work and then it you know with some setup changes and stuff everybody started getting the cars to work well um you know and well, jump ahead now they have the new lay-down transmissions, motors even further forward, like I was saying. And I just saw a picture of Ryan Cavalleri's car uh, on Facebook the other day. And it looked like it was his car from the world's. It, it has a different body. The transmission's lower. And uh, I believe he was going to test at OCRC uh, from, from what I got out of it. And so it's interesting to see that these guys take the next step into uh, – y- you know, into the next car to, to drive on these high bite surfaces. Yet they go back to these different surfaces that they're used to. And it seems like they end up making them work. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that typical? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times you, you, when you first throw throw
1: something down, it doesn't work because you throw the setup on from your old car Mm -hmm. and you know, the setup is completely wrong for whatever the, whatever the dynamics are of the new car. And if you don't stick with it long enough, get the setup right, learn how to drive it. Because they have a different driving technique. So when you go back to a track like that, they, they've had to practice. They've raced for a week, sometimes two weeks at, that, at a world, depending on the event. And you, you actually learn. You learn both from a how to drive, how to set up. You've got a whole bunch of people working on a setup on one car. And it evolves to a point when you go home, now you know how to use it where you didn't know how to use it before. And I mean, just, just driving is a big thing. And that's, that's a, a point we haven't talked about is usually when we have a big shift in track conditions or car technology, you usually see the next generation of guys that are, are have gotten fast, but not gotten f- set in their ways, rise to the top mm-hmm. and you have kind of a changing of the guard. So it's going to be interesting as these, these conditions change, if some of these new kids can dethrone the older, the older Kings.
0: Which just happened. So, you have- well,
1: we'll see if it sticks because the current kings are a, a breed we've never seen in the sport before. They're so good, so many, so much experience. They've raced so many different classes, and they put an immense amount of time in. Right. So, you know, in the older days, I'd say guys didn't put as much effort relearning new cars as they do today. So, but. Instincts, just your driver's instincts that you develop. If you're a younger kid and you're still developing your instincts while the change goes on, I think it's a big advantage. Because you you tend to, you're really open to do things a new way instead of stuck in, this is how I always used to do it.
0: Right. So it's kind of just, it's easier to roll yeah. with punches. And it's, its
1: it comes down to both driving instincts and setup instincts.
0: Right. And... I guess you'd probably need a, a good team of support behind you for for those drivers to do well. Yes. You know, especially if they're learning those, you know, if they're learning the instincts and they're learning the driving mm-hmm. abilities, uh, you know, they might not necessarily be picking up on the setup uh, ability and be able to adapt to the different tracks. I think that's one thing that we don't see very often in racing now. To kind of go back to what we were talking about about the tracks being more dynamic and starting on a loamy track and they dry out. You know what you're saying about the evolution of the inserts. Um, you know, is that not as necessary for drivers to know setup as well, since the tracks are so much more consistent these days? Or do you think that's just kind of a starting to be a lost art form that it takes a whole team to accomplish, uh, you know, proper setup changes on a chassis now?
1: Well, it definitely takes a a good team and support when something, when there's a big change, once something is evolved, then you can kind of, Say that it's not as important anymore. The cars are so much better. The tracks are so consistent that I think it's it's you don't need to be as flexible or innovative as we did as as a driver setup guy back in the old days. Um, things were a lot more challenging. You never knew what was going to happen. Um, now you have a pretty good idea. But even that being said, there's in our day there was say like ten to fifteen really good guys. Now you go to a worlds and there's 40, 50 guys that are all there to keep whoever the fast guy is honest and the depth of field makes it more difficult now even though some of the other things are easier
0: right is uh i mean it seems like there's a lot of a lot of the top racers these days aren't very knowledgeable of of setup you know, they, they definitely, they heavily rely on their team. Is that, is that something I
1: think it's necessary? <laughs> the last thing you want a driver thinking about is what to tune on a car. You just want him to purely driving the car and all his mental energy is how to drive the car faster.
0: Right. Well, I guess that kind of answers my question then. Cause I was going to ask you yeah, how was that, were drivers, was that the typical mentality of the drivers back in, in, you know, the early days of racing RC, did they have the support or did they have to be more of a dynamic a, you know, person or, you know, have that whole package to be successful. Well, up until,
1: up until Associated released the car, everybody basically built their own cars. So you had to be very on your own. There was no, there, you just didn't see team support and it didn't work the same way. When the RC 10 came out, obviously we, we had the associated team that started the, the teamwork dynamic. Um, when Losey came out, we continued it. So there was a lot of, the team dynamic became important, but, um, it's gotten to the point now where there's so many good people that, you know, I think the team dynamics only really as important when you have a a transition point, once it's stabilized, most people are pretty good on their own.
0: Do you think the teams spend more money now on, uh, just on their team budgets? Uh, I guess you can kind of throw a little bit of R and D in there as, as well for, for the race teams, these days as compared to, you know, back in the 80s I, and 90s. I think
1: they spend a bigger percentage of their profits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how some of these race race companies make a profit these days. Yeah. It, and, you know, it's it's so expensive to constantly be developing and tooling cars and then support a good team that you have to sell a lot of product in it. And I don't think people appreciate how how close to the wire some of these companies are cutting it to do what they do.
0: Definitely. I, I know for sure that a lot of racers have no idea, you know, how much time and effort and money goes into these teams and, in supporting them. It's, it's pretty amazing going to some of these big events and seeing, you know, you start seeing these teams have productions almost.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're kind of, I'll say redesigning an existing car, you know, you can do that fairly quickly. You know, you can do that within a single season. If you're doing something that's ground up different, You know, um, you know, like when we did the triple X, it was such a departure from the double X that car was underdeveloped for, for almost two and a half years. It wasn't just a quick, you know, Oh, I want to make this idea and throw it down. We, you know, we built three or four different concepts and we spent the better part of two years taking them around to different tracks testing. We'd always stay the day after our event, test test the new car new ideas against the cars we raced and we're always benchmarking and you can't just go practice to develop race cars you have to race and then test them sometimes even throwing them down and race them when people aren't looking to see how they perform in the racing environment against cars against competitors of different kinds of cars because you know you can have a great car but if Nine cars are out there driving one line and you're the 10th driving a different line. You're going to get run off the track, even <laughs> if you're faster. Right. So you have to worry about speed and how it
0: relates to the other cars around you. If they had camera phones and social media back when you're developing that car, how long do you think it would have lasted before everybody knew about it? <laughs> you know, uh, we, we were still a big problem in those days. People had a lot of cameras out, kept
1: a close eye on me. So a lot of times... I would, I'd be running decoy stuff and somebody else would be running the test stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think you'd see that anymore. (laughs) The, um, all right, well, let's, let's, let's move on. We can talk for hours about racing. Um, Let's jump into, I've uh, got some questions from some of our Facebook followers. Uh, if you have any questions for any of our podcasts, uh, I will post up who our guests are gonna be in the future episodes. And feel free to chime in in the comments of it and if you have any questions for whoever the guest is. And since we've got Gil sitting here, I've got a, a handful of questions from our users. Um, if your question is used in the podcast here, then you will win a $10 AKA gift card good at raceaka.com. Just contact us through our Facebook page and we will set you up with that. So, uh, the first question, this is from, uh, Steven Zarzecki and Steven asks, um, for some people that race RC cars, the hobby can quickly become more of a job than it is a hobby that we have fun doing for someone like yourself who has been in the hobby for so long. How do you keep? RC racing fun and exciting to avoid being burned out on RC and hanging up the hobby for good. Well,
1: for me, you'll see that I have hung it up many times. <laughs>
0: uh, there's there was many years when
1: um, I would actually stop racing for a year at a time, and I would get to a burnout place where the temper would get out of control. I apologize to everybody in Canada. Many years <laughs> ago, I was a dick, but you know, you just lose yourself, and you can get to that place and when you do, sometimes the right thing to do is hang it up. Um, and yeah, I've been there a few times in my career and, but you always, it's just, you have to take, just take a step back, breathe, think about all the reasons you did enjoy it, go back and work on those and just not get caught up in your ego and winning races. You know, I kind of came to the belief that all you can do is go have a good time doing the best you can. Some races you'll win that you deserve, didn't deserve. Some you'll you know you'll you'll lose that you did deserve, and you can't control that. So you let
0: the racing gods decide. So, what are some drivers that are racing right now you think should hang it up?
1: <laughs> Not going there. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! Not going there uh, at all. I
0: thought I could sneak one You know, in.
1: I haven't been around the guys. I, I got I'm impressed with the pro guys and how well they do um, handle themselves and help people. Um, you know, I just got back from a race in Europe, the beginning of this year and sat with a few, a few of the, 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 pro guys that, you know, Mayfield for one of them. I was so impressed with just, I haven't been around him in years and how much he's matured and how, just how positive his attitude was, whether he was doing good or bad. And, you know, I know the guys that race for us, the amount of energy and uh, you know, amount of energy they put into it and what's at stake for them. How well they do actually handle themselves. It's hard to do. Yeah. It takes definitely. a lot of maturity.
0: Yeah. And a lot of them have changed over the years, too. It's some, some of them started not being able to, to carry themselves very well and ha- built reputations for themselves, which have completely changed. Yep. Which uh, we all are, start this, you know, not all, but a lot of us start this as kids, and
1: you do grow up and you right. go through cycles where, uh, you know, like I, I had years I was not proud of my behavior.
0: How about Mark Pavitas? Do you think he should hang it up? Oh, God!
1: Of course. <laughs> no, you know what? If Mark if Mark would actually take racing serious, I still think Mark is as good as anybody out there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, I I completely agree. He has he has his moments of glory. I he's, think.
1: he's immensely talented. He just
0: his problem just is got to get him out to the track more. Well, that and he's putting all of his talent into his kid now his his kid's just an oh. apple that didn't fall far from the tree yeah. and i give it i give it six months before ryan starts beating yeah. mark
1: i haven't seen ryan at race in the, the, this year yet but i hear it's amazing why we don't race in the same class. <laughs> but yeah last year when i watched him i was like oh my god this little kid i can't beat him anymore already
0: yeah yeah every i i see him race every four or five months and it's amazing how much faster he gets. He's a, time he's a time. tiger. And it's been probably six months since I've seen him race. So I just can't, I he's for sure going to beat me next time we race. <laughs> so hopefully I can move up into the 40 and over class with Mark soon. And then I'll have to worry about it. Well, I
1: need a 50 and over. <laughs> uh,
0: I'm sure we can make that happen at some races. All right. Well, park, Part two to Steven's question. Steven has some great questions here, so we're gonna we're gonna read both of them. Uh, we've seen an evolution of electric racing from brush motors to brushless, and from old NiCad batteries to lipo power. Do you see nitro racing having an evolution similar to how electric has?
1: Wow, that's that's a big one. I I, I don't. I think that um, I think electric has become so efficient um, that it's going to be really hard for a nitro anything to to unseat it now well do you think electric a scale might be oh, that electric evolution? Eight scale um, yeah it could be it could get there um, you know I think that one of the nice things about eight scale is that it is nitro and you get the long races right so I think that you know the electric will never be able to do the long race part of it but um, I'm not sure I caught all that
0: question that was a good it's a good one there's many parts to that one yeah. That was, that's a great question. I, would you, I know I've seen a few people, uh, well, like the Fiscale, they, they moved to the two stroke gasoline engines. Yep. Um, do, do you think that gas could be a next evolution for the nitro cars? I hope not. I don't <laughs> like the
1: smell of the gasoline cars and they yeah. run really hot. So I won't be the one around the tracks with them if they all started burning gasoline.
0: I think fuel injection would be pretty cool for these fuel cars. Fuel injection
1: would be cool. I agree.
0: they can get really efficient, still make some good power, like we saw in in dirt bikes. You know, going from the two-strokes, the the thumpers, and then to four-stroke now, and it's yeah. that's a pretty amazing jump.
1: No, you know, I, it, I'm not sure that eight scale needs to really be the the engines are good. You know, you get a good quality engine; they're good. They have plenty of power. So, that's true. Um, I don't know that we need it uh, need it to be innovative. I think that the biggest thing we see with the eight scale cars is just you know the 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 asian engines getting getting to be as good as the italian engines you know is, you know obviously os has done a really good job but if the taiwanese or the chinese ever get it you'll see the price cut in half and that would be probably be the biggest you know i think change change force to that category but um but as far as what it is it's it's a good class i think that class is here to stay i hope it never goes away cuz i i like racing it <laughs> I I like it being able to still get my hands dirty and tune an engine and not have to take a programming class.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be one thing that would would be a big learning curve for people. But we'll see what happens. Uh, Stephen, thank you for your questions. Uh, Let's move on to Mark Thomas. Uh, This is a he's got three parts to his questions here. Again, great submissions. Uh, First question you kind of touched on earlier. Uh, what's your favorite class to race? Eight scale on road first, then eight scale off road second. <laughs> what about those? Are, is is more appealing to you than, say, ten scale electric off road? Part of it is the engine. I love engines. I, I've always
1: enjoyed the engine, and then the long race strategy. You know, electric it's about who's the fastest. When you put, as soon as you put a car down for forty five minutes to an hour, now there's a lot of racecraft. You have to have strategy. You have to be able to execute. You have to adapt to changing conditions. You know, the car's wearing out, the track wearing out. And it's, it's more dynamic, in my opinion. I, I just always really liked it. And the on-road, you know, unfortunately, you don't see very many tracks in the U.S. that are good enough to really enjoy them. But when you do, you drive those cars 110%. The harder you drive them, the better they work. They're kind of these evil-handling live-axle <laughs> beasts and if you try to drive them easy, they don't handle it all. But the harder you drive it, the better they work. And once you get to that point where you know where it's going and you can commit 110%,
0: you can't drive anything harder than that. <laughs> oh, that sounds like fun. Uh, next part of Mark's question is, uh, well, you're going to have to give a little history on this one. I'm surprised we didn't talk about this. But uh, Mark asked, where did the yo-yo idea come from? <laughs> oh, the yo-yo idea was my dad's, not surprisingly.
1: Um we hit a, a really bad year in RC. The electric cars were dying. The batteries were terrible. The brush motors weren't holding up. And it was just the category the, the nitro was starting to get popular in the States, but it hadn't caught on yet. And the industry was really sick. And the company that we buy all our, bought all our ball bearings from was telling my dad, Hey, yeah, I'm, we're selling all these bearings to this yo-yo company. And then, um, Hobbyco, one of the big distributors, said, "Yeah, we're selling a lot of yo-yos, so it's like, hey, we got time. We can, we know how to make things,
0: so we made yo-yos for for a while." Which I see those pop up every now and then in the RC it, community. It, it was, they kind of a, seem like little little mementos of, of yeah. RC history.
1: It was a really fun project. You know, it was you know, we spent six months learning how to learning how to yo-yo and what makes a yo-yo tick, and then tooling it, designing it, tooling it, and producing them.
0: If I handed you a yo-yo right now, would you be able to? to fling that thing around? I could
1: do a few tricks still, but I wasn't, I was never that good. I I still liked racing better. So (laughs) I worked on the engineering side of it more than I did the actual playing side of it.
0: All right. And the last part of Mark's question is what is your brother Alan up to?
1: Still tries to skate once in a while. not, you know, a little bit. Um, really he's, he's into his band. Um, he still works heavily in the skate industry. Um, you know, he was, he mentored a lot of people. He was always heavily, heavily involved in the community. Um, but you know, his body's just ruined. So his, his hardcore skate years are done. He tried to, he tried to do it a couple of years ago. Again, tried to do the old man tour and he beat himself up trying to do that, but he still can do it when he tries. But, um, but now he's, he's struggling with just a really beat up body.
0: Yep. That's uh, a lot of skateboarders seem to be doing the same thing, <laughs> yeah. but we actually, it's funny. We've, we've seen a few of the old time skateboarders come into our industry, like Steve Caballero. Yep. Uh, he's, he's gotten into RC. Yeah, Steve's raced on and off for years. I mean, I remember back,
1: back before horizon, just in the old team, Losi days in the early nineties, he contacted us and he was racing in there. And so he's kind of come and gone a few times.
0: It's crazy. But huh? I actually,
1: I actually went up to Milpitas once when we were traveling and went to his home track and saw
0: him race there and helped him a little bit oh, very back cool. in the old days. Very cool. All right, Mark. Well, thanks for those questions. Hit us up for your gift card. Uh, and the next question is from Steven Dunn. <laughs> Who was your favorite competitor to race back when you started racing?
1: Wow. Good one. Good one. Steve Dunn. Huh? Is it the Steve Dunn? The race prep Steve Dunn?
0: That I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think it is. <laughs>
1: We'll say, hey, Steve, Um, God, there was always so many. Um, I don't know how to pick that one. I I think that, I don't know, I had my heroes, Art Carbonell and a few of the other guys that were my heroes when I was coming up as a driver. I think it was always great when you could actually compete with them and beat them at a race. That was always really rewarding. Um, I don't know, I was always more concerned with beating myself performing better at each race. Um, if that was more important to me than who I, who else I beat.
0: Fair enough. Uh, n- next question is from Rob Vargas. Uh, Rob asks any desire to take the Losey name and company back and running the business again?
1: Well, obviously in, in many ways I'd love to have it back. Um, I don't know that I'm ready to work that hard again. You know, cause you have to live it. I mean, I lived it seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, I put off having kids till much later in life because I worked so hard. Um, though so there's a part of me that misses it. So it's some of the best days of my life and another part of me that just says, oh God, I don't want to work that hard ever again. Um, so it's, it's, it's it goes both ways. Uh, and it's really hard. the The most beautiful thing about low C in the days, our days, you know, it was, a, it was a it was a U.S. made product, and we worked with all our vendors. And you can't do that today. There's just there's there's no way you can make any money trying to to do what we did the way we did it today. And I don't know that I'd want to move to Asia so that I could oversee all the manufacturing to do do things the same way we did it.
0: Yep. Or else we'd see ten scale cars that cost as much as a scale cars.
1: Well, they really should. I mean, if you were to take a low C car today, they should be selling f- street prices in the $500 range.
0: Yeah. I know if they were made in America, me personally, I'd buy them Yeah, yeah at you, that price. Some people would, but not enough.
1: Right. Not enough to pay for the tooling because the, you know, the manufacturing costs are probably double what they are in Asia, but the tooling price is the killer. The tooling price is like four times and the engineering costs are four times. Yeah. Some big dollars there. Yeah, That's all I, I mean, know there, everything went exponentially up in the U.S. in the last twenty years, and you know they're still paying. So everything's cheaper there than it was when we started in the in the in the eighties. But yet, you know, the costs over here are
0: quadrupled. Right. Well, thanks for the question, Rob. Uh, the next question is I get asked this all the time, and this question is from Brian Looper. And he asked, "Where did the AKA name come from?" And uh, I actually don't know the origins of the name. The origins of the name, you know, we started AKA with
1: Kyosho when I was at Kyosho America for the for the year, and um, it actually means red in Japanese. And so Kyosho's team colors were red, and that's that was the tie to Kyosho.
0: How long uh, was AKA uh, in? A, a part of Kyosho before it became independent. I think we were shipping product for about six months. We we
1: were kind of just we had really just gotten up to full speed when the whole financial crisis hit, and at which point we purchased it away from Kyosho and took it separate.
0: It's not very long. So there you go. It means red. It's a very very simple explanation. <laughs> it, it
1: also all the things fun things that also known as and a few yeah. other plays with it. Which I think is we, what most people assume we, is what we, we actually wanted to leave that. That was kind of a let people think whatever they want. But right. yeah, the, the original thing
0: was it, it ties to red and Japanese. Okay. Um, next question is from Dave Kreider. Dave asks, why don't you ever race anymore? I see Joel Johnson and Mark Pavita still racing. I r- raced against all three of you back in the 80s and would like to see you racing again. I will. I I just kind of have to get the
1: bug and the timing has to be right and the right equipment. It's, it's really hard to go race cars. Somebody else built for me. And, um, it's going to be, it's going to kind of require, I'll play now and then, but it's going to require me to be ready to step up and actually kind of start tweaking on something and building my own version out of something for me to be truly interested
0: and want to put in the time. Does your natural ultra competitive nature hinder you from getting back into racing or is that not something you worry about anymore? Of course. I hate losing
1: still. (laughs) I'm slow now and I hate losing, but, but, you know, honestly, the last, the last half of my career was more about product development than racing. And I enjoy that more than racing now. Um, it would take a lot of practice, a lot of work to get my racing skills back up to just race and I'm not ready to make that commitment. I think I'd rather get out and still play with the, the product side.
0: If you grab a car off the shelf right now, it's ready to run, ready to hit the track, best of everything, what class would you go out and race? Oh, I would not go modified if that's what you mean. <laughs> it's gotten
1: so fast. I, I really enjoyed the um, the 17.5 class. I thought that was a really, I like the power of that. Buggy, truck, st- stadium truck, truck horse. I'd
0: still go buggy. True racer at heart. I still go buggy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, question here from Sean Sanchez. Sean asks, "How many samples of track dirt do you have?" <laughs> Hi,
1: Sean. Um, <laughs> wow.
0: None anymore.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I used to keep sample a lot of samples everywhere I went. That's that's great. Were those just
0: personal mementos, or no? No, we they... used to
1: actually bring stuff home and you know spread it out and. Make a little patch, water it, and then scrape tires on it, and see which compounds seem to grip it the best. And
0: the, you I, know, and I, I would call that grassroots
1: R yep, and D. <laughs> yep. You know, and you know, you throw it in a jar, put a little water in it, shake it up, and watch it settle. And you can kind of see what, how much sand, how much clay, what kind of what the different color clays are, and you can kind of get a loose idea of of what a dirt is. And after years of doing it. Um, if we had to go race at a, tr- a track that we couldn't see, if I could somebody send me a sample, I could do my little water test and at least have an idea what tires we might be needing.
0: It'd be a lot easier to do today. I mean, you can go to a grocery store and buy a bag of sugar and, you know, there's your sample. You're done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, in the early
1: days, it was hard. You'd show up at tracks uh-huh. and you could you could break 20 cases of tires and nothing
0: would work. Did you actually learn much from, from the samples of taking those home and seeing them separate and seeing how they're... I think it looked more impressive than it was actual
1: product- productive. <laughs> no, sometimes. Sometimes you'd have a pretty good idea, but um, I think more than anything, it got to where I could actually help people figure out how to make the tracks work. Yeah. You know, so you know when we travel around and a track would just be blowing up, and if you had an idea what was in it, you could say, "Hey, try calcium chloride. Try you know we had a couple other you know gypsum and a few other things we'd mix in if the dirt depending on what the dirt was doing." um, you know, teach them how to do the concrete dirt mix patches. And, but you had to kind of know what you were starting with to be able to help them. Right. And so it it was more productive from a track builder maintenance side than it was actually a car side.
0: Well, I mean, it's productivity is productivity, whether it's unexpected or or not. So, so you, you can laugh at that all you want, but uh, that probably helped a lot of a lot of different tracks right.
1: in the old days. I used to help a lot of people with their dirt. Yeah. That's you know, all the years of the building the ranch pitch up track and all the different dirts we worked with had a lot of, we had a lot of experience with big races and what, how to make dirt work for a multiple day race instead of just a evening race.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, that's one thing I did want to ask you that, uh, I, I got bits and pieces here and there from when you're talking about your history of racing and, uh, you know, your development with Associated on the RC-10. Uh, I know from back in the 80s and 90s, uh, team rivalries were were a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, it was forbidden <laughs> to talk to the other team. Where nowadays, it's everybody seems like their best friends from one team to another. And uh, I'm, I'm sure even a little too friendly uh, uh, on many different levels of sharing information or, you know, purposely or accidentally, but, um, did you ever see, um, the, the rivalries, did that push the evolution of RC? Do you think it hurt it, you know, in seeing now today how there's not really those team rivalries anymore, especially between low C and associated, um, you know, definitely not in the level it used to be. But, um, did you see that as being something in hindsight, productive, you know, counterproductive
1: um, I, I, think it would, the rivalry was actually good. Customers would line up on both sides and enjoy the battle. Um, but you know, it's different now, you know, in those days we were all spending a ton of money developing product and trying to keep the other person from learning what we learned. Now it's that nobody's doing that kind of development. Everybody's throwing around ideas, but you don't see the level of deep product testing that goes on for years that you're trying to keep secret that used to go on most of the product today, somebody will come out with an idea. Everybody jumps on it. There's 15 copies and through the evolution, it's kind of all out in the open. You don't see the big steps and the, the, this What's the right way to say it in our day. We didn't know what to do. We were all learning today. Most of the stuff's basically known and it's constantly just evolving for the the condition.
0: Do you think it would even be possible for a manufacturer nowadays to keep something secretive to make a big change if they did have an idea for a car or yeah.
1: something? Yeah, you would. You know, what, what I was doing at the end of low C, and I think that anybody that was going today could still do it, was you basically, your pro drivers and your main race team didn't see what you were developing. They didn't see it till you were ready to show it to them. You know, the Triple X was under development for a long time before any of my good drivers ever saw it or drove it. And that was just, yeah, you know, just, you couldn't, you couldn't let
0: those ideas out of the bag. Did you ever go to any absurd lengths to keep something secretive? Of course. Of course.
1: Yeah. I remember one time we left one of our test cars in a hotel room dresser. <laughs> we had to get them to ship it to us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, there's been some stupid stuff over the years that looking back on it going, what were we thinking?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I guess an appropriate question to wrap things up on would be, uh, where would you like to be in the RC industry in the future? What would you like to be doing ideally? Or, uh, you know, would you like to develop a new car? Would you like to stick to the tires? Where do you see yourself?
1: Um, well, I'm constantly trying to figure out where racing should go so it could grow. And I I think at some point in time, I would like to get back into it, but it's going to be in a way to how, how do you make the industry grow again and, and reward the people that do the work and not, you know, just I'm concerned for who makes the profit, how it gets made and, and where it goes in the industry. Um, I don't know that what we have now is a recipe to, you know, reward the people that truly are supporting customers.
0: And I'd like to figure out how to change that. Okay. Well, I think we can wrap it up there uh Gail, thanks for uh coming on the aka podcast and, and spending some time with us and it's great chatting with you and hopefully we'll see you back again soon my pleasure and that is it for episode two of the aka podcast thank you for listening you can check us out facebook.com slash race aka you can tweet us on twitter at race aka we're on instagram pretty much most of the social media uh, outlets out there So get in touch. Let us know what you want to see on a future episode or if there's a guest you you want to uh, hear from on there as well. So uh, we'll talk to you guys all soon.